0: My name's Richard, and I'm going to be speaking today uh, from this passage in uh, Hebrews chapter three. And uh, do fasten your seatbelts because it's uh, a challenging passage and an important one as we look at uh, trusting and obeying uh, Jesus so that we can be happy in him. Um, let's Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, the scripture says that Uh, Most of us, many of us had uh, parents who would discipline us and we respected them for it. And Heavenly Father, as we look at the way that you, as our Heavenly Father, discipline us today, help us to come to a place of truly honouring and respecting you for it and longing to obey your ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I lived in Walsall in the West Midlands. And uh, I was working on a housing project for homeless young people. And occasionally I would um, sneak up the hill to St. Matthew's Church in Walsall, which is a church where they threw John Wesley down the steps of when he went to preach the gospel uh, back in the 1730s. And uh, I would say morning prayer uh, with the little cohort of people who were gathered there. Mark Ireland was one of the clergy, Jeremy Oakley there, Michael Saunders. And a few lay people would gather in the morning to uh, pray together. And at the beginning of the morning prayer, the Anglican morning prayer, we would say together Psalm 95. And it it was set to say every day because it begins beautifully, like a sort of charismatic worship chorus. Come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. He's a great Lord. He's a wonderful God. The seas are his. Come, bow down before him. Let's kneel before him. He's wonderful. And then it gets to a point, which is the point that's quoted in our passage today, verse 8. And it puts it in square brackets, basically saying, yeah, you don't necessarily need to say this each day. Um, But the square brackets bit are this. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. And I said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they'll never enter my rest. And I suppose that was deemed by the uh, liturgical group at the Church of England not to be the most inspiring thing to say every day. But it's the bit that the author of Hebrews uh, turns us to uh, in, in her book or his book. We don't know who wrote it, but it may have been Priscilla, one of Paul's uh, disciples. It might be why it's not got a, a name at the beginning, because after a while they didn't want to put a woman's name to a book of the Bible as Fita uh, will do some research on. So she quotes Psalm 95, but she quotes from this bit. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so we have to ask, well, why, why quote this bit of Psalm 95 to her audience? What's going on? Well, they're facing extreme suffering, extreme persecution. It's at a stage in the history of the world where the temple is either just been destroyed or is about to be destroyed. It's not a great time for being religious in any sort in the Roman Empire. They're cracking down on religious cults and Jewish and Christian groups are going to be very hardly pressed. There's a temptation, there's a danger, there's an opportunity if you like to fool away from following God. And no matter what this early generation of Christians have seen happen, what miracles that they've seen happen, the fact that they've had first-hand evidence of the resurrection from people who have seen the resurrection themselves, no matter what they've seen, there's still that temptation to fall away. Have you, have you ever felt that for yourself? In, in the psalm, he describes it as, uh, as hearts that get hardened. And he talks in verse, or he or she talks in verse 12 about sinful and unbelieving hearts turning away from the living God. And that our hearts can get hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's an emotive phrase, isn't it? Sin's deceitfulness, because it it comes in on you, doesn't it? As if it's a good thing. Did God really say, don't eat the fruit of the tree? Did God really say? Did God really say? And there's a bit in us that as soon as we start talking about boundaries or obedience, we automatically rebel, do not we? My uh, boys have been playing on phones during the lockdown, And one of the games is called something like I.O. And basically what happens is is you're a dot on the screen and there are boundaries that keep coming in around you. And you have to try and keep within the boundaries. You just have to keep moving around, trying not to be caught out by the boundary, which is trying to trap you. And when it traps you, that's it, you're out. And so much of our life can feel like that, can't it? We're we're moving around and the boundaries are changing and we're, we're trapped before we know it. And there's a sort of a lie that comes in, a deceitfulness that comes in and says, "Ah, oh, does it really matter? Of course, the, the person who wrote the psalm was King David. And you have to wonder at which bit of his life is he writing this psalm that's being quoted here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in rebellion. He's thinking back to the time of Moses. And he's talking to his people. He, he's writing a song that's probably going to be used for public worship. And it's basically a worship song of praise for the new temple when it gets built. It's a song that he wants to be front and center in the new temple worship when it gets built. He wants people to come in with thanksgiving. But there's a bit in David that knows that the heart is deceitful and sinful, so he puts in this square bracketed bit at the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And you wonder which, which David is it who's writing it? Is it David before the adultery or David after the adultery? Is it David before he murders Uriah or David after Uriah? Is it that he can feel the war going on in him already and he's speaking to himself as much as to his people, knowing that the battles raging inside him and he, he mustn't harden his own heart? Or is it the song of an older man who knows what it's like to have sinned and failed and messed up and failed so badly, looking back on the people of Israel and saying, don't be like that. I only just got through this mess. Don't be like that too. And the story that David's telling in is the story of Moses and his generation. And they were a generation who had seen unparalleled miracles from God. They had had God camping out with them in a sort of divine human lockdown that lasted for 40 years. Near the beginning of the lockdown in the desert, uh, the people had said to God, don't leave us, don't go away from us. If your presence doesn't go with us, how can we go from here? They said, stay trapped in with us. And God was reluctant in the story to do that because he says, well, if I stay close to you, what if you sin? My anger will flare up against you. I can't stay that close to you, trapped to you. <laughs> it's all going to go wrong. But they, they wanted him to stay close to them and then they rebelled against him, and then they rebelled against him, and then they rebelled against him. And if you've uh, watched the Chosen series recently, there's a flashback to one of those times where a plague of snakes is sent on the people, and Moses raises up what looked like a a cross with a, a snake on it, and people could be healed by looking at it, but God's anger burns against their disobedience, and a whole generation don't make it into the promised land and rest. And the writer to the Hebrews, writing a thousand years later on than David and 1400 years later on than Moses, wants her Christian brothers and sisters to know that they're also in danger. That this isn't just a given, that you start out with God and then you just sort of give up and you're going to be okay. She wants them to know that it is. Possible for those who have seen the sort of miracles that Moses' generation to not to enter into the rest. And if you flick over to chapter 6, she ends up by saying that uh, those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and have fallen away, it's impossible for them to be brought to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And then she uses the analogy that land that drinks in rain often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to it, uh, to whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. She says you've got a, a danger going on in your life, Christian church, that you're going to produce thistles rather than good crops. And if you just produce thistles, at the end of the day, the farmer will come and he'll make fertile ground again by burning the crop up. It's the starkest and strongest warning and it goes on and again and again through chapters three through six and she's laying it on thick saying, don't disobey. And I'll come back to where she takes that afterwards in a second, but just muse with me for a second God's angle on this story. We've seen David's angle, we've seen the early church angle, we've seen a little bit of Moses' angle. Well, what's in it for God? Does he, does he just want us to be obedient robots? Didn't he have angels to do that? Is it just that he wants to say jump and then we sort of ask how high? Is that what God's all about? Some of you may have experienced being in lockdown with other people in the house, sometimes people you're responsible for. Ask yourself what you want of the people around you. Do you want to be telling them to do this, do that, do the other all the time? Or it is actually what you want, uh, that they will know your ways and fit in quite easily into what's supposed to be going on in the home. But another way, imagine you're bringing up a young child and uh, you're spoon-feeding them their Weetabix in the morning and they bash it away and you have to clean the floor of the Weetabix you sort of get along with it, don't you? you? You sort of get them to the point where they know how to feed. But if they were doing that when they were six or nine or 12 or 16 and you were having to feed them and they were bashing it away, you'd be a bit annoyed, wouldn't you? Because the point of parenting them is that they learn the ways. So that they don't have to obey it anymore. It's not even a question, do it. You've learned the ways. The same with stepping in the road, no one wants to be talking to a child that they're raising every time they go out of the house and say, don't step on the road, don't step on the road, don't step on the road. We don't want to be doing that, do we? But we do it when they're three, four, five, six, and 7, hoping that we won't have to do it when they're 12, 13, 14. Now, when they're 19, 20, we might have to do it again, of course, because, you know, life kicks out that way. But you basically want them to know the ways and get on with it. God's agenda for his people is maturity. He wants adults, and so later in Hebrews, it says, I wish that you guys had got to the point now where we could put away these foundational things of repentance and move on to deeper things. God doesn't want us to be stuck in an obedience, disobedience cycle of a a disobedience, repentance. He wants us to know his ways, not have to be told what to do. And now, unlike Moses' generation, unlike David's generation, he's also given us the power to live out his ways through the Holy Spirit living inside us, giving the grace to hear his voice and, and hearken to what he says. And so the writer to the Hebrews at the end of chapter 6, she says this, having warned people that they could, out of disobedience, be burnt up by fire, she says this, and it, it reminds me of something that was said to me once when I was in danger of getting into quite a deep sin as a, as a teenager. Someone lit me in the eye, someone I valued and loved, and I just told him what I thought I was about to do or in danger of doing, and he said, you're better than that, Richard. I was like, well, if you only knew, i would definitely not better than that. He said, you're better than that, Richard. And because he told me I was better than that, it double took me more than the rule being brought down on me. And listen to what she says in Hebrews 6, verses 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, dear friends, people we love. We're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God's not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Put some effort into it. Follow the people who have got it right before you. And back in chapter three, encourage each other every single day so that none of you hardens your heart through disobedience. We can't do it on our own. But with encouragement, we can. Dear friends, you're better than this. Dear friends, you're better than this. We have hope of salvation for you not a repentance sin cycle that pulls you down eventually and hardens your heart to the point where you have to be burnt up. Now you're people who have tasted Jesus, and Jesus in you is not going to give up on you. Jesus in you doesn't let you go. He holds on to you. You're going to have to absolutely reject him so hard if you want to get away from him, but he's going to keep holding on to you. We hope for salvation things for you. Salvation things, things that mean you will see what you've hoped for. That's what we hope for you. That's what we long for you, but don't stop going to the end. Don't think you can go into coast mode. On the motorway of life, you'll end up in a crash. Don't think that you don't need people alongside you to help you. Don't think you can do your social media at the same time as your Bible study. It's not going to work out for you. You need to hold on, and in the middle of it all, as she quotes Scripture that quotes Scripture, She says this, she says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We're gonna give account to him one day. He's gonna look you in the eye and say, so what did you do? What did you do with the talents I gave you? What did you do with them? You're going to gaze on the face of the one who was crucified for you. You're going to see the holes in his hands and in his sight, and he's going to say, and? And what we hope for you, dear friends, is that you can say, I kept on going to the end. Not because I was brilliant. Not because of anything just good in me but the word of God kept me on track as I heard it preached, as I read it day by day, as I listened to my friends encourage me, the word of God was sharper than a double-edged sword and it kept me on track and I kept going to the end and I listened to the voice of the martyrs of the faith and I listened to those who encouraged me and I kept going, Jesus, I'm here. And he'll say, well done. You good and faithful servant, you endured. You endured. Come and inherit what was promised to you from before the beginnings of the earth, you endures. Now, we all stumble and fool in many ways. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we're making God out to be a liar. So all of us, all of us, have to come back and get our feet washed by Jesus from time to time. But if he's given us a bath in his spirit already, if we've been baptized by his spirit into his family, then all we've got to do is keep walking that out faithfully down the years. Today, if you're hearing his voice hammering on the, on the handles of your heart's doors, please listen. Come back to him. Repent. Turn. Because we have great hopes for you, dear friends, that not one of you will be lost or perish, but that you all make it safe to him for eternity. May God bless his word to us today. Amen.